The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, If I didn't meet you on the way in, my name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad to see you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 5? 2 Samuel 5 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. You can open a phone or a tablet. Uh, We also have those hardback black Bibles under every chair. You can open those up to page 257. Uh, That's where 2 Samuel 5 will be in those Bibles. Uh, I've said it the last few weeks. If you want to take one of those black Bibles with you because your Bible uh, is, you know, in a different translation or with a lot of, you know, kids' pictures in it and things like that, you're welcome to that. And I've been putting new ones out. So some of y'all are taking them, and that's our gift to you. We're thankful uh, that you would take those with you. Second Samuel 5, as you are meeting me there, uh, have you ever gotten to the end of a project or, or like a task or a job and just feel that, you know, that weight kind of melt off your shoulders. Like you finish something and it just kind of, it, this lightness and this joy. It happens to me every Wednesday when I finish my first draft of the manuscript of the sermon, where I'm just like, if nothing else happens, Sunday will happen. Like, it's just like, oh, like that sort of feeling, uh, especially when, when, when bigger things happen, like, like longer, kind of more time-consuming projects. The response that I have and the response that I would imagine that you have is normally this, finally. Finally, like it's over. Finally, um, finally, I'm finally done with high school. Finally, remember that feeling when you, I'm done. Like finally, I finally get to go to college. Finally, right? Uh, I finally got my first job, and I can start paying off that college, right? Finally, finally, I finally met that special someone. Didn't know it was going to happen, but finally it happened. We finally got married. He finally proposed after four, five, six years of dating. Finally, he moved on it, okay? Finally. We finally saved enough to put a down payment on our first house. We can stop paying rent. Finally. Finally got pregnant. Finally got pregnant. Finally, we are done with diapers. Finally. Okay, finally. That's a huge one. That's a big one. We can finally retire. We can finally uh, visit our family more. We can finally, I mean, fill in the blank with whatever you want. Finally uh, is, is a moment of completion. It's a moment where, where, where lightness happens, where, where reflection happens, where joy occurs. And, and today we have a finally moment for David. That's what we're gonna see in our text. The last two weeks have been rather interesting in terms of the topics that we've got to cover, right? Two weeks ago, we looked at David uh, amassing wives and we talked about polygamy a little bit. That was weird. Uh, And then last week, uh, in the wake of so much violence and so many murders in this story, uh, we use that as a springboard to talk about violence in the Bible and what we do with that. Today's topic is much less controversial, okay? But it's, but it's unbelievably practical for us. David today finally becomes king. 
He will finally become the king over all of Israel. And so what I want to do today in chapter five of 2 Samuel is I want to do what I did last week. I want to work through the text in the first half of our sermon. And then on the second half of the sermon, I want to apply the text for us. So, so, so we're going to do that. We're going to work through this whole chapter and then we'll apply it. I have taught on many of these topics before. So if you've been with us for a while at Fathom, some of this might sound familiar, but hear me, that's okay. That's okay because a preacher's goal isn't to bring new and novel stuff every Sunday. Just so you know, like I want, I want the stuff to be new and novel. Like I want that, but, but it's actually a preacher's goal to teach God's word as many times as it takes for these principles to be cemented in our minds, in our hearts, so that we might actually believe these things and then our lives might actually change accordingly. So, so if you get to spend five, 10, 15 years with us here at Fathom, if, we get, if I get to preach you know, 40 times a year for the next decade and you get to sit here, you're going to hear the same things that I think God's word reveals to us that we have a hard time believing. And, and just, I promise you, you're gonna need this on repeat. This will happen again today. So here we go. Sp- spend this time with me in the text. There's payoff on the second half. Second Samuel chapter five, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. Let's go together. Then, remember when, whenever we see a transitionary word, what do we do? We figure out what's just happened. Well, what happened last week, Ishbosheth is dead. The only challenger to David's reign over Israel is now dead. Saul's final son is dead. And so then, after all that happened, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Hebron is in Judah. That's where David is ruling over one of the 12 tribes. They come to him at Hebron and they say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Finally. Finally. I mean, this is what all of first and now the beginning of second Samuel had four years of work for us. And finally, David is anointed king over all of Israel. Now, If you remember back to the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 16 specifically, uh, the prophet Samuel, the namesake of these two books, actually anointed David as king. Remember this? Like he chooses him out of all of his brothers and anoints him as king. And so you're like, well, this is weird because he was anointed then and now he's being anointed again. Like, what is this? Well, this, this anointing of Samuel was a prophetic anointing and it was more of a secret. Not everybody knew about it. It wasn't like the official anointing of a king. It was essentially, hey, this is what you're gonna be when you grow up. You're the next king up. And and so at that point in 1 Samuel 16, David was probably a teenager, fresh out of the fields, the shepherd boy, right? Maybe 13, 14, 15 years old at this point. Um, And the text just told us that at this point, in this moment, 2 Samuel 5, he's now 37 years old. So we're talking 22, maybe 25 years 
He's been waiting for this promise that Samuel had made him, and now it's fulfilled. It's, it's finally happening, finally. So 25 years, 25 years, just for fun, okay? 25 years ago, uh, it was the year 1999, the 1900s, okay? Uh, and that was, some of you weren't even born, some of you were not even born in 1999, uh, but here's what happened in 99, just so you're aware. Remember the Y2K scare? <laughs> Did anybody else fill up their bathtub just in case? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're crazy like my mom was, okay? <laughs> she seriously made me fill up the bathtub, both of them. Both, two bathtubs full of, I don't know what that was gonna do for us, but we had enough water in two tubs, okay? Um, 1999, Tiger Woods, Remember him? He used to play golf. I mean, I think he still shows up, uh, but he was 23 in 99, and he won his first PGA championship in 99, okay? Uh, Tony Hawk landed a 900. First time that ever happened on a skateboard. Uh, you may or may not know what that is, and that's okay. The first and only good Matrix movie came out in 99. Uh, uh, Napster and music piracy was a big deal at this point. And then, of course, in 1999, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants debuted <laughs> and is still going strong. So how, how do you think you'd feel if a prophet from God made you a promise and then you had to wait a quarter century for that to be fulfilled? 25 years. David is finally the king over Israel. Now, the rest of this chapter is going to show us what happens as David is established as king. So he is now anointed as king. This is the early years as David establishes his reign over Israel. And you'll see some interesting things, I think. So let's look at verse six. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come uh, into, into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. So this is an interesting little moment in history that we kind of skip over often, but, but this is the first way that David kind of establishes his kingdom is that he sets up his capital city. His capital city uh, was not going to be where he was from. So David was from, like I just mentioned, a town called Hebron in Judah. And that's where for the last seven and a half years, he has established his kingship over the one tribe of Judah. Um, but King Saul, who has just died and then his son has just died, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. So if you were looking at a map of Israel, Judah's right down here in the south. The other 11 tribes kind of sweep up and around to the north and, and Benjamin is right above Judah. 
And so what David does shrewdly as he sets up his kingship is he says, I'm not going to make my capital of this empire uh, my hometown in Judah. Rather, I'm going to pick a city called Jerusalem. You ever heard of it? Yeah. You haven't heard of Hebron. You've heard of Jerusalem, right? Uh, Jerusalem, though, is located right on the border of Judah and Benjamin, right on the border between the southern tribe, Judah, and the northern tribes of Israel. And and what David shrewdly does is he says, I'm gonna pick a city that's neutral, that is in between, so that Saul's crew aren't upset because they just lost the kingship. The tribe of Benjamin just lost the kingship. And instead of saying, well, now you all have to come down to Hebron, he says, no, 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 I'm gonna move up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at this point is not associated with any one tribe of Israel. It's actually, as the text said, occupied by a tribe called the Jebusites, which are a part of the Canaanites, which are the, 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 they're the occupying people that were supposed to be eradicated from the land in the occupation of the promised land. They obviously weren't kicked out of the land because they're still residing there. And so they don't think that David can take them. They make all these jokes about, we'll just sick the blind and lame on him. That's like a joke. Like our blind and lame could stop David and his force. David's like, let's go. He brings in his men, he takes the city and he sets up Jerusalem, Zion, as his capital city, and Jerusalem will play a major role in the rest of the biblical narrative. Jerusalem is unbelievably important. So the first thing he does is he sets up a city, the city of David. Now look at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So, second movement. After the city of David is established, what we have is the king of Tyre. Tyre is a part of the Phoenician empire. So this is not Israel. These are foreigners Uh, and, And he sees, the king of Tyre sees David's growing strength. And what he does is he gives David a gift. He gifts David uh, trees and carpenters to help make, uh, help David build a palace in this newly acquired city of David. And so the nations outside of Israel are beginning to recognize that David is legitimately the king that there's this new king of these people, Israel, and he is being established by the Lord. And they're seeing that and they're acknowledging that. But verse 12 is really interesting because the, verse 12 says all, that, all of these things are helping David to know, like to confirm that the Lord is indeed establishing him as king. Like he got the city and now the nations are starting to recognize and give him gifts so that he can establish that even more. And, and all of these things are like little signposts. God actually did fulfill this. I didn't just happen upon this kingship. I didn't manipulate the situation. God is indeed blessing me in this move as his king. Now, in verses 13 through 16, which I'm not going to read uh, because there's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. Um, but, but in 13 through 16, we find a list of David's concubines and wives uh, and his children. And we find out that he, first of all, is getting more wives, 
a lot more concubines and having a lot more kids. Now, this is normative, right? This is part of growing as a new king in your kingdom, establishing yourself. Uh, I'm not gonna repeat two weeks ago in terms of whether he should or shouldn't. He shouldn't, right? You get one wife in biblical theology, not seven or eight, okay? Uh, But David kind of is a man of his own time and that's how they did things. So he is having uh, more children. And I'm not gonna read these verses, but there are two sons of note in verse 14. So look at verse 14. There's four, I think, sons mentioned in 14, but two of them are are Solomon and and Nathan. Solomon and Nathan are really important. You'll you'll know Solomon likely because he will be uh, the the succeeder of of David. He will be the next king. Uh, So we know Solomon, uh, but Solomon would become the ancestor of Jesus. He's next in line in the line of David uh, through Mary's line. And you can see his name in, in Matthew 1, 6, when we read the genealogy of Jesus. But then Nathan is really important too, because Nathan is also in the ancestral tree of Jesus, but he is through Joseph's line. So they can trace ancient ancestors many generations back to these two brothers. Nathan was actually the great, 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 great. I didn't memorize enough greats, but great grandfather of Joseph. So both Mary's line and Joseph's line are tied to David's line. And we can see his name in Luke chapter three, verse 31 in Joseph's genealogy. Just You just have to see how intentional the Lord is in weaving all of these things together as he is moving, moving redemptive history forward through these texts. So now look at verse 17. 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. So pause for a second. The Philistines are back. The Philistines, as we know, are the the evil empire against Israel. They are are the scourge of God's people. And just remember, the Philistines had, had, they have the upper hand at this moment. The Philistines had just done battle with the house of Saul. They killed Saul. They killed three of his sons. I mean, they are the winners right now. Even at that moment, David was living in Philistine territory, working for the enemy. So that's where where we last left the Philistines. And up until now, most commentators think that the Philistines must have just assumed that David was either still a loose ally even though he had left Philistine territory, he left Ziklag and came back down to Hebron. Even though that, they must have either thought, well, he's still our ally, or perhaps he's at least net neutral. Like he's just kind of neutral to us, especially because as soon as he comes down there, there begins the civil war that we talked about in chapter two between the house of Saul and the house of David. So Israel is not united, it's divided. And so they don't perceive David as a threat. But once he becomes king over the whole 12 tribes, they change their view of him. They perceive him as a threat and they make a move. So look at verse 18. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim and David defeated him there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me. 
like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So two things to note in those verses. First, the word Rephaim, the valley of Rephaim, Rephaim literally translates giants. It's translated giants. So they meet, the Philistines meet David in the valley of giants. And the irony is not meant to be lost on us that they are going up against the giant slayer in the valley of giants. I, I don't know how to apply that. I just love details like this in the Bible. So they show up in the valley of the giants, the giant slayer is on the other side and, and they fight. And second thing to note in these verses is, is that David inquires of the Lord before he goes into battle. He checks with God and he prays and finds out what's happening. And then notice that he obeyed the Lord and then gave credit to the Lord for the victory. So he, he, he inquires of the Lord, he obeys to the letter of the law, and then he gives all glory and honor to the Lord for his victory. It's a beautiful picture of how the man after God's own heart is supposed to function. And remember, he's a complicated character because he goes back and forth from, from being a sinner, broken, um, uh, I mean, kind of a jerk at times, all the way to this is the guy who, who is a man after God's own heart who we should look to as a model. This is a model moment. But then verse 22 is really fascinating. 22 says, the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim again. So they must be just gluttons for punishment. They're back to the same valley. And when David inquired of the Lord, there he does it again. The Lord said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So uh, battle part two uh, with the Philistines, it would appear that they're gluttons for punishment, uh, but, but take note, again, that David inquired of the Lord, and this time the Lord tells him not to do things the same way. How often do we assume that when God tells us to do something one way, that he's gonna tell us to do it the same way the next time? David's not so quick to that. He wants to inquire of the Lord. The Lord changes the strategy. He moves them in a different direction for the second battle. And again, David did as the Lord commanded him. It's just a quick side note there, y'all. Um, we don't just do what God tells us to do. We, we continue to ask him, what do you want from us next? It's not just, hey, you told me that. It's what are you telling me now? It's not enough to just pray once and get some direction once and then just go. Rather, we're to constantly inquire of the Lord. This is why I think Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians that we should pray without ceasing. There's this continual connection with God that he wants to guide and direct us every step, every day. Don't just do what he told you, do what he tells you. So that's chapter five. That's our text for today. David is finally king of Israel. God finally has established his kingdom. So what I wanna do with the rest of our time is I wanna talk application from this. 
Um, and, and what I'd like to do with the rest of our time uh, is remind you that this has taken 25 years. I think the most, most pressing piece for us to gain from this narrative is that this has taken a quarter of a century. Hey, here's the question. What do we do as we wait for God to do whatever it is we think that he should be doing in our lives? Like, what do we do when he's promised something to us and it's been a year, five years, or 10 years, quarter of a century. Like, what do we do as we wait for our own finally? What do we do? Well, I have three application points for us. Um, And the first one I think is a common mistake. It's a question that we should ask. And so first, as you are waiting for your finally moment, I think you should ask this question. Is the thing I'm waiting for a promise or a wish? Is it a promise or is it a wish? Because I meet with people all the time who don't seem to have a way to discern between the two. So just, again, stay with me. Seriously, can you point to chapter and verse in God's word to show that whatever it is you're waiting for is actually a promise from the Lord? (coughs) Excuse me. Or is it just something that you're wishing for? Like, is it just wishful thinking? Hey, would you guys bring me my water bottle from the back corner? I would wish for that right now. (laughs) Woo. It's right there, the tickle. Thanks, buddy. Is it a promise or is it a wish? Now, ooh, I got a piece of ice. That's a win, okay? (laughs) Now, listen, um, there's nothing wrong with wishing for some stuff. Like, I want you to hear that. There's nothing inherently wrong with wishing or hoping that some stuff would happen. You can hope and you can dream about all kinds of things. But I want you to think about this. Sometimes we wait in futility for something that God never actually promised us. I'll give you some examples, okay? Um, And they might rub some of you the wrong way. They might hit a nerve, strike a chord with some of you. Um, But but I want to do this because I often meet with people who are upset with God because of this or that. And listen, he never promised you that thing. So we got to discern, is this thing an actual promise or is it a wish? Let me give you some quick examples. First, let's talk about prosperity. Okay, sometimes... We take a, like an idea or a dream or an endeavor that we, that we go on and we grab a verse from the scriptures out of context like this, Jeremiah 29, 11. Who loves this verse? I do. Yeah, great verse. Okay, ripped out of context all the time. Let me, let me okay. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is a great verse, 
right? We cross-stitch this verse onto pillows. We put it on coffee mugs, right? With like, we post it on our Instagram with like some cool picture, like we're super hip. And like, that's our claim. Like, that's what God's promise is for me. But, but we'll take that verse and we'll apply it to ourselves like this. So God's promised to prosper me, right? That's what that verse means. So in this business endeavor, I should expect prosperity, In this relationship, I should expect it to prosper. Whatever it might be, God has promised me prosperity. The problem with that is the context of this verse, the context of the book of Jeremiah. First of all, it cannot mean for you what it did not mean for them. We say this all the time here. And the book of Jeremiah, listen, it was not written to you. And now I said this last week, it's for us. But it's not about us. This, okay, Jeremiah was written to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. The Israelites were in exile because they disobeyed God. Their disobedience to God, they are receiving judgment and discipline from the Lord, and they will spend 70 years in Babylon. They don't get to be in Jerusalem. They get to be sent to Babylon for 70 years. And so Jeremiah is not, uh, he's promising them not like this prosperity and success in some endeavor. Like you should start that small business because you'll be prosperous. That's not what this is about. What Jeremiah is saying in context is this, you're not gonna be in exile forever. This is not forever. There's hope. There's a future. But spoiler alert, you're going to have to wait 70 years for it. And it's in the context of those decades of discipline from the Lord that this is applied. But Christians, we just love to strap this verse onto whatever we want to strap it onto. It's like, hey, we need a new building here at Fathom. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? That doesn't have to do with property acquisition. I mean, that's not what the text is teaching. So we love to slap this onto all kinds of things and take it to mean that our business is gonna prosper or our relationship is gonna prosper, but it doesn't mean that. Listen, college students, it doesn't mean that you're gonna crush your finals. Name it and claim it, and you'll still fail if you don't study. That's just how it works. This is not the promise that we can take from that verse. Now listen, there is a promise we can take from that verse. There is a promise for us in that. The promise we can take is this, God does have a plan for you. He has a plan for you and it is towards your ultimate good and not your harm. But it's not for every detail in your life where that prosperity is promised. Please take this in context. Uh, Prosperity in your business is a wish. Prosperity in in your relationships with your kids, it's a wish. Prosperity in your health, prosperity in your wealth, all of those things, it's a wish. The promise is God's got a plan for you. So that's the first example, it's prosperity. Second, and this one happens all the time and it's heartbreaking. Uh, Let's talk parenting. Here's one that everyone loves. Proverbs 22, six. Train up a child in the way he should go And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, some of you know this from experience. 
And others of you have not yet hit the reality with your kids yet as to what parenting looks like, but this is not a promise. It's not a promise that every kid who is raised in a Christian home will ultimately be a Christian themselves. Oh, how I wish that were a promise, but it's not. See, we, we take this as a promise, but listen, it's not. It's a proverb. A proverb is not a promise. Please know this. It'll change the way that you read the book of Proverbs. Because you ever read that thing and you're like, hey, you know, the ant and like, I'm not a sluggard. I'm not like, I'm like the ant, I'm storing away. And then you still go broke. A proverb, listen, a proverb is a pithy statement about how life generally works. It's general wisdom for how to live. That's what a proverb is. But a proverb is not a promise. It's not like an if then statement. If you do this, then this will happen. Because reality would teach us that if you do this, who the heck knows what will happen? It doesn't mean you to give up on the wisdom of the if statement, hoping, 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 wishing, wishing for the then to happen the way you want it to. But it is not a promise. A proverb is how life generally works. But we take this and we're like, okay, so we just do some family devotions and we watch Veggie Tales and like we send them to Christian school, then, then they are gonna be Christians. And how much heartbreak have we seen when it doesn't play out like that? So parents, train your children up in the way that they should go. <laughs> like, please do that, okay? There is great wisdom in how we should parent in this text, but there's no promise of result. There's no promise. Parents, all you can do is influence. Like, and that's an important thing an unbelievably important thing, but all you can do, do is influence their hearts, is, is, is pray for them like crazy, is, is model for them that the most important thing in your life and should be in their life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do everything you can to influence in that direction, but none of it guarantees that your kids are gonna be Christians. Those are wishes, not promises. And guys, you, listen, I could, the, the, the list could go on and on and on. God never promises us long, healthy lives. You can get cancer and die. God never promises us monetary wealth. So many Christians are poor on the edge of poverty. God never promises that you'll get married. Gosh, you could look for that special someone your whole life and never get to that finally moment. He has a plan for you. God never promises that, that you won't have seasons of doubt. God never promises that you won't be hurt by other people. Like those aren't promises that the scripture makes. So be careful to check for what you're waiting for as to whether it's actually a promise from God or if you're just hoping for it, if you're just wishing for it. And again, there's nothing wrong with wishing, but don't cash that check in yet. Wait. Second application as we wait for our finally moment is this. Very often, God moves slow, not fast. 25 years. Very often, God moves slow, not fast. And we are surprised by how slow he moves all the time. 
right? I am. I am. I'm, 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 I'm overwhelmed at times by how excruciatingly slow sometimes uh, growth with Jesus takes. How long it takes. How slow it is. Does anybody, anybody look back at themselves five, ten years ago and think, uh, gosh, I can't believe I'm, I, I thought I'd be further along by now. Anybody feel that? Like you look back at your, like when you got saved or, or maybe five or 10 years ago and you're like, I can't believe I'm still here, still struggling with some of the same things that I was struggling with back then. I thought I'd be further along, but I'm just telling you, it takes time. It's slow. It's not fast. Following Christ is a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, we say these things all the time. It's, it's a crock pot, not a microwave, right? It's, it's, it's a socked in, slow drizzle, not like a Colorado 10 minute thunderstorm. God, God, God moves like a glacier, not like an avalanche. This slow and steady, but unrelenting in its purpose. That's how God tends to move. But I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't like that. I want it fast. I want this now. Like I want it now. All of it right now. The trouble is, all through the Bible, when God wants to do something in somebody, he usually chooses to go slow and not fast. Almost never does he just like instantaneously do something in somebody. The trouble all through the Bible is that we want this finally moment and God says, you got to wait for that. You got to wait. We're talking about David, okay? So David uh, did his 25 years, but think about this, Abraham and Sarah, if you've read Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, who had to wait 25 years for God to give them their promised son, Isaac. You're gonna have a son. 25 years later in their elderly years, they get pregnant. How wild is that? It's not just them, okay? Moses, he, he kills that dude, buries him in the sand, runs away from Egypt, and spends 40 years in Midian tending sheep before God, like, fires up that bush that is not consumed and says, let's go back and do some work. Then he spends, by the way, another 40 years in the desert wandering with a complaining people. So that's crazy. Even the apostle Paul, it's not just Old Testament. Paul in our, in our New Testament gets knocked off of his horse, is, is made blind, converts to Christianity, stops killing Christians, like that big deal. The text then goes on to, he goes dark for almost 15 years. It, it takes one page in Acts, which is not fair for us as readers, but uh, in that one page, 15 years, Saul is in Tarsus learning about Jesus, growing in Jesus, and then, he show, then a guy named Barnabas shows up 15 years later and calls him to become a church planter. Here's what I've learned. God's timetable never moves at my pace. It never moves at my pace. Sometimes this whole thing feels like it moves incredibly slow and then life feels like it keeps getting faster. This goes completely against every instant gratification itch that our world throws at us. God's timetable, you can you take this one to the bank. His timetable never moves at my pace. Never. So the thing that you're waiting for, is it a promise? Is it a wish? Don't get freaked out when when if it is a promise, it, God moves slow, not so fast. But then my last application is this. 
If you're there, I wanna call you to wait, don't waste. I want you to wait on the Lord when everything around you is trying to get you to waste the season you're in. Let me explain. We, cultural Western 2024 American Christians, have become inoculated with this idea that waiting is a bad thing. That waiting is problematic because our whole world in an attempt to make things easier and you've got a computer in your pocket that proves it. But everything in an attempt to make things easier and more streamlined and more convenient has bred into humanity a lack of patience that has resulted in a lack of resilience. We don't know how to wait. We'd rather waste Time incessantly scrolling through junk. I taught it on this exact same idea when we studied James a number of years ago. But James 5 says this, James uses this illustration. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. See, James, in his illustration on how we should wait, he turns to a farmer, something they would have all known, but we can get our heads here too. A farmer never just comes to a field, like shows up at his field and then goes, all right, I'm just waiting on you, Lord. Let go and let God, Jesus, take the wheel with this field. Never. No, 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 it's not, it's not like, let's, let's just do this. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for you to do something. No farmer in his right mind would ever do that. Because listen, that's not waiting. Waiting isn't doing nothing. Okay, rather the farmer, he does everything he can to produce the crop. Right, he tills that and digs and he plows and he seeds and he weeds and he waters and he does all that he can to cultivate the fruit. But at the end of the day, the farmer must go put his head on his pillow, close his eyes and wait patiently for the Lord to bring the growth. In our text, James specifically, he's talking about like the rains, but we have like modern irrigation. So, but either way, you still have to wait for the sun to do its work, for the weather, for the pestilence, for all that stuff. Like it's a miracle of God that there's corn or wheat. It's a miracle of God that anything grows and the farmer knows how to wait patiently for God to grow something. There's just something that happens in the waiting. In the waiting, God is working. As you wait, God's at work. This is the principle. This is the principle of Sabbath. This is the principle of rest. This is the principle of waiting on the Lord. Young parents, okay, if you're a young parent in here, uh, frankly, you're probably just waiting for a full night of sleep at this point. Uh, but, but let's just assume you get there, okay? Uh, if you were to look at your life as a young parent, you would, might say, okay, what, what did I do today? Like, what did I do? Well, I changed a bunch of diapers and cleaned up after my kids. And you might look at your life and say, that's what I'm doing. And I I would just say, no, no, no. You were actually building and forming those kiddos. And also God was building and forming and working character in you. Like God was at work while you're just waiting for your kids to grow up. God is working and forming and shaping and maturing you as you wait. 
hey, you, you got a job, you, you work in a business or you work in sales or you got, you got, you're, going to, you're going to work tomorrow? If you're in that place, the question is, what did you do today? You say, well, I just worked my job. Pushed paper, sold a thing, made a thing, bought a thing, did a thing, okay? I worked, I got a paycheck that is like, okay, it's part of good things there, but like nothing real lasting, nothing of real value. I just kind of did my job. Nine to five, working for the weekend. And again, it's like, no, no, no. You're not just waiting in your job for retirement for the weekend, for your two weeks of vacation. No, God's building character in you and through you. Who knows what he's doing as you faithfully work? Students, high school, middle school, college, grad school. Students, what do you do with your time? What are you doing with this season of waiting? Well, you know, studied some stuff. Most of it was lame, history, math, probably never use it again. You probably will, okay? Just so you know, you probably will. Um, But listen, even if you don't, even if you never use the thing that you learned this week, again, God is building character in you. He's growing you. He's maturing you. He's using this time to prepare you. Don't waste it. Instead, wait on the Lord. So listen, if we were to go all the way back to to 1 Samuel, uh, early in those first chapters, all of this stuff began, if you remember, when, when King Saul, that first king of Israel, was impatient, he didn't wait, he took matters into his own hands, and because of that, God stripped him of his kingship, took the kingdom away, and actually threw a an evil spirit on him. Why? Because he would not wait. Because he wouldn't exhibit patience. Because he didn't just wait for his finally moment. And I truly believe that Saul could have waited. But he didn't. And it was taken from him and it was given to David, who today is finally anointed king of Israel 25 years later. So y'all, I I want us to take the application from this story seriously. Like I want you to take it to heart today. What are you wishing for right now? What are you hoping that God will do? And and have you banked on it as a promise from God or are are you, is it more of a wish? And like I said, it's not bad to wish but I just wouldn't put all of my chips on red. Be careful. Is it a promise or a wish? And then also remember that his timetable never moves at your pace. Like God's timetable never moves at your pace. He's slow. He's a glacier. Changing landscapes over decades and decades. Not an avalanche that's just blowing through everything. Slow, not fast. And finally, finally, when the finally happens, when that finally moment happens, you're not going to want to look back at the season that led up to that and think, well, I just wasted a whole bunch of time. Instead of commend to you, wait on the Lord actively like a farmer. Don't do nothing. Do something. 
because he's doing work in the waiting. And that's why I had Isaiah 40, verse 31 read over us this morning. And this is the promise that I want to leave with you that you can bank on. This is a promise from Isaiah for us. So hear this and then we'll pray. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Pray with me. Lord, it is one of the most challenging parts of the Christian life. One of the most challenging parts of our lives as followers of you is that we don't know if it's gonna take five years or 10 years or 25 years or longer for your promises to come to fruition in our lives. But over and over again in the text, on repeat through your scriptures, you call your people to patiently endure, to patiently wait and to not force the issue. And so today I'm thinking that there are many things that we are waiting on right now. Some of them are promises from you and we should patiently wait. Some of them are wishful thinking ideas that you may or may not fulfill. Help us to discern that. Give us wisdom in that. Lord, when, when things seem to be crawling at an unbearably slow pace, would you give us resilience? Like the farmer who just waits for you to bring the growth, would you help us to recognize your, your, your normal pattern of growth is slow, not fast? And then finally, Lord, I don't wanna look back and think that I've wasted time wasted a season, distracted myself with incessant media consumption. But rather in this season of waiting, you're working. And so Lord, what do you want to work in us in this season? Reveal that to us, Father, through your Holy Spirit, that we might honor and bless our Savior, Jesus. So Lord, do this work in our hearts now. Preach to our hearts, reveal to our hearts, lead us towards change, that we might be more like your Son. It's in his name, Lord, that we pray by the power of your spirit and all God's people said.